This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Kara ong Associate Director at JMU Civic and your co-host for today. I'm Angelina Clapp, the Democracy Program Fellow at JMU Civic. And I'm Logan Ziegler, Administrative Assistant for JMU Civic. We're delighted to have join us today Dr. Kristen Wiley, an Associate Professor of Political Science at James Madison University. Her research examines how electoral rules, political parties, and constituencies interact to affect the representativeness and accountability of democracy. And we're having her on as the first of our guest um, series this month around Women's History Month. National Women's History Month traces its roots to March 8, 1857, when women from various New York City factories staged a protest over poor working conditions. And the first Women's Day celebration in the United States was in 1909. A couple of weeks ago, the Organization of American States also commemorated the 93rd anniversary of the Day of Women in the Americas. For the commemoration, Bradley Frieden, who's the interim permanent representative of the United States to the OAS Permanent Council, said in his remarks that gender equality and women's empowerment cannot be achieved without addressing gender-based violence and its root causes. Dr. Wiley, I wonder if we could start off uh, by asking you what can be done to address gender-based violence and biases towards women? Thanks for having me on, Kara, and I appreciate all the work y'all are doing here. So, you know, in commemoration of the Day of Women, International Women's Day, we have seen many people talking about the need for more women women's representation in places of power. And I wholeheartedly agree. I want to say that one of the barriers that we have seen facing women who aspire to be a part of, of political power is that there is this gender-based violence that people experience not only in society, but also in politics. So I would say something that struck me uh, you know, pretty profoundly in the research that I've done on women's representation is in Brazil is that many women politicians told me that they felt like they faced even more violence and bias against them in Congress than they felt in society. And so I would say that this problem of gender-based violence is not one that stops once women, you know, surpass all of these obstacles and make it into Congress. They continue to face gender-based violence in politics. There's an emergent literature on violence against women in politics that speaks just to this issue. And a campaign by the National Democratic Institute, uh, which is a, you know, a, a think tank affiliated with a with the Democratic Party here, has a campaign called Not the Cost, where they try to talk about ways in which we can change this idea that violence against women in politics is just the cost of doing business. Um, but part of this comes from stereotypes that we have about girls and women that are socialized, um, you know, at at an early stage. Um, It comes from the objectification of girls and women in the media. If through objectification, we dehumanize and then therefore are more likely to uh, tolerate or at least, you know, condone or not address those instances of violence against people. And so this is 
really important for us to change. In my class on women in politics, we frequently come back to early education as the key for changing these kinds of biases. That if we can reconfigure the way that people imagine power, then we can do so in a way that would further inclusion. Thank you for that. Now, Dr. Wiley, how would you describe the state of women's representation in decision and policymaking processes globally? And what are the conditions that lead countries to be more inclusive of women policymakers? So although women are the majority among electorates worldwide, we remain numerically underrepresented in almost every country. And women from minoritized racial, ethnic, and religious groups face heightened barriers to their inclusion. So Melanie Hughes has done a good bit of research on this with colleagues and finds that majority men are on average nine times more likely than minority women to get elected to their national legislature. For those comparisons with majority women and minority men also are unfavorable to minority women, but a little bit less so. So minority women are, uh, you know, two times less likely to get elected than majority women and minority men. And so we also see some changes on these factors. I think that's important to stress uh, that there are advances that have been made in recent decades. And this holds not only for, uh, you know, majority women, but it's also extending to minority women. We also know that while openly trans, gender nonconforming, and intersex politicians remain underrepresented, the tides there have also started to turn. I'd also say that one shift in the literature has been to stop talking about about women's underrepresentation and to start talking about men's overrepresentation as the problem. And so in the literature on gender and politics, we have generally conceptualized the factors that explain men's overrepresentation as falling into supply and demand factors. So we think that there are some supply factors that affect the pool of women politicians. And there are demand factors that kind of shape our understanding of candidate viability and more. So when we talk about supply, we're thinking about things like cultural expectations about gender roles, religiosity, historical trajectories, media treatment. These are things that have for so long established and then reinforced the scope of what's possible of how we imagine power. And we then further see that these raced and gendered structural inequities and resources like time, money, access to informal networks further condition the supply pool. Then when we think about demand factors for politicians and these gendered ideas, um, we're talking about things like the electoral and party system. And those factors affect the likelihood that women who aspire to electoral office will actually be selected as a candidate and then elected. And we've found that generally countries that are most likely to elect women are those that have proportional representation, electoral roles, and a well-functioning gender quota, which is to say one that works with their electoral system, that is enforced by the electoral officials and political parties, um, and that is uh, well, you know, broadly acknowledged by, by the polity. It's really important to point out, though, that men's overrepresentation is sustained not only by formal rules of the game, like proportional representation and gender quota, but also by informal norms that guide our day-to-day interactions in and beyond the parliament. And so when the rules and norms that guide 
access to and exercise of political power are in most cases have been developed by men in the absence of women, they've been done so according to the life rhythms and needs of men. And so even if men aren't intentionally closing women out, which is a big if in some cases, there's this masculinist ethos of doing politics that shapes how we envision power, leadership, governance, candidate quality, that term viability that we know often carries all of these ideas and more. And so these institutions or rules and norms that are that seem to be gender or race neutral in practice have very race and gendered effects, maybe sometimes inadvertently, but still nonetheless. And so like parties, the way that they construct the ideal candidate, the incumbency advantage, this idea of homophily, which is our tendency to socialize among people like ourselves. These ideas, maybe even when they're not done explicitly excluding people on the base of race and gender, reinforce the white and patriarchal status quo. And so I would say that my takeaway point from this literature is that parties are the main gatekeepers and thus stand the best position to mitigate men's overrepresentation. They're the ones that can mediate the effect of electoral rules. They're the ones that have access to resources that can cultivate and support viable women candidacies. And what I found in my own research on women's representation in Brazil is that parties that have women in their state-level leadership structures and well-developed organizational infrastructure, and those are factors that are more common among, but certainly not unique to leftist parties, tend to do a better job recruiting and electing women. Now, as a follow-up to all that, how has COVID-19 impacted women in decision-making and representation in power structures? So we can think about that in a number of different ways when asking about the question of how has COVID affected women's access to, to political power. The factors that I discussed above, the structural inequities, are going to be heightened for women, right? So we've already seen that inequities in time and money are a deterrent to women aspirants. And so those have become more scarce, like access to time and money has become even more scarce in the COVID era. And so it has potentially deterred women from throwing their hat in the ring. We also, however, see that women, you know, we have been socialized, I would say it's not inherent to women, but we have been socialized in ways to value things like healthcare and consensus building more so than the way that traditional gender roles have have socialized boys and men. And so that kind of emphasis on healthcare um, and, and consensus is one that is potentially carrying some explanatory power for why the top performers at the national level in terms of, of COVID policies have been women-led countries. So looking to New Zealand, Germany, right? Like there has been this recent attention um, by the role of women in leadership and how the different way that we've been socialized to lead has positive effects on our approach to to governing in, in crisis like, like COVID. And so I think that's, you know, it's interesting. It has this kind of, you know, two, two kinds of effects. One, that women are seeing intensified demands on our time. And then two, that this crisis, you know, the pandemic that we're in has in some ways kind of added value to the skill sets that we socialize women to have. 
There's been some research. I know that Dr. Adams and Chaparral have, have done some research looking at health ministers and you know women's representation there, and what COVID does to uh, you know value women's expertise in those ministries. And so I, I guess I would say it's it's not simple. It's 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 a bit complicated. We might also see that women uh, could be kind of compelled or called into the electoral arena based on our discontent with government response to COVID here. And so it's not a kind of neat consequence, I guess I would say. Thank you for that. Now, how have global social movements and grassroots women organizers paved the way for greater representation in policy and decision-making processes? And can you share examples? So I really appreciate this question. And this is where I hope to take my research in, in future um, iterations of it. So, so one of the things that I found in the, the work in Brazil is that some women, especially Afro-descendant women, are kind of cutting their political teeth in social movements and grassroots organizations rather than in political parties. And that they are doing so in part because of their kind of affinity for you know, the the kind of bottom-up approach, but also because they've been excluded from political parties. And so then they are bringing this social movement background into electoral power, which I think is really promising and helps to kind of push political parties to be more open to connections with civil society and thus potentially to further inclusion in, uh, you know, very elite spaces to date. And so I think that that's a really interesting uh, trajectory of this kind of connection between party politics and social movements that women, in particular marginalized women, stand uniquely positioned to kind of bridge those two gaps. Um, And so thinking more globally, this idea about like paving the way for greater representation, um, you know, it's about centering voice kind of bottom up and grassroots voices and spaces that have been very exclusionary. And so I think that the prospect of bringing more people into the fold is, is promising. There's this new book by Karen Sellis and Sarah Childs called Feminist Democratic Representation. And they talk about this idea of Thinking about democratic representation according to feminist ideals of egalitarianism, inclusivity, and responsiveness. And a key part of those ideals is precisely this opening to more bottom-up influences in the process. And so I feel like women are, especially women who have been active in social movements, are very well positioned to kind of bridge those two universes. And so not even just in formal, like in politics, but also in our study of politics, those conversations have tended to proceed kind of separately. Like we've got a literature on social movements and then we've got a literature on political parties. And there's been this really exciting research that is trying to connect those two spheres. According to your book, Party Institutionalization and Women's Representation in Democratic Brazil, weakly institutionalized and male-dominant political parties in Brazil work to undermine political representation. What are the causes and consequences of weak institutionalization and male domination in political parties? And what parallels do you see in the United States political system? 
I know that is a mouthful of a title, so let me unpack some of the terms there. So by party institutionalization, we mean parties with ideas-based party platforms, so not just an electoral vehicle for a single, usually male politician, a party that has clear and enforced rules governing party life, especially rules about ascending within the party organization and becoming a candidate, and parties that have a vibrant organizational infrastructure and party life. And what my research shows is that those seemingly race and gender neutral party characteristics condition parties' capacity to recruit and elect women. Parties that have rallies, workshops, lower level offices to run for, ideas-based campaigning and recruitment networks that go out and encourage people to run are more attractive to women, in part because we've been socialized to be consensus builders and because such organizational, human, and psychological resources can counter the financial deficits and traditional gender norms that have for so long told us that what they say in Brazil, politica equis or politics is a man's thing. So what I argue is that party will to support candidates is driven by the inclusivity of their leadership structures, which I proxy with women in subnational party leadership. And I find that that interaction of party capacity and will is a statistically and substantively significant predictor of women's electoral prospects. So when women are in a party state, state-level decision-making circle, they're able to let the letter down to other women. When their parties are well institutionalized, those women leaders have both the, the will and capacity to marshal resources on behalf of, behalf of other women. We see that Brazil's electoral rules tend to induce this problem of a weak party institutionalization. Um, they have a combination of proportional representation and a presidentialist democracy. They have over 35 political parties. The parties are, most of the parties are not ideologically coherent. And so what happens is the people that tend to ascend within those organizations are those that have these kind of individual um, you know, wealth or connections that allow them to rise to the top. So in Brazil's largest district, Sao Paulo, they have multi-member districts. There are 70 people that represent that state. And you, the voter, go into the electoral booth and you vote for one person among those, uh, you know, that one person that would be one of the 70 representing that state. In the 2018 election, there were over 1,200 candidates and you would pick one of those 1,200 candidates. And so, you know, the party label is of dubious, um, you know, information because there are multiple people running within the same party. And so then who emerges to the top of that list um, is determined by their individual vote total. And that reifies and exacerbates this kind of connection-based politics, right? Like that you have to have access to party leadership or money or, you know, prestige in order to, uh, you know, to be successful. And so then that just perpetuates the status quo. I want to say it's important to acknowledge when I first began this research, I had this data set of all 25,000 plus people who ever ran for Congress in Brazil, which I know is amazing to have a complete data set like that. Um, Brazil's electoral infrastructure is super impressive. 
Um, but I didn't have anything on candidates' racial identity. And so especially in Brazil and arguably anywhere, it's problematic to assert someone else's racial identity and preferable to allow people to self-identify. After protracted advocacy by the racial Equality Ministry in Brazil in 2014, candidates began being asked to declare their racial identity. And so I'm then able to test whether this explanation I have of women's political prospects held for Afro-descendant women, which are the majority in Brazil or the plurality Afro-descendant women. What I found corroborates decades of intersectional research by Black feminists in this country, that obstacles compound for minoritized women, and that minoritized women have been blazing distinct paths to political power. They've leveraged their leadership experiences in communal organizations, rather than depending on what are often racist and patriarchal party orgs to develop their political skills. And so we see many of these ideas travel pretty well to the U.S. We have an incumbency advantage. Money, time, network inequities are a deterrent to women's uh, candidacy. And that the internal organization of parties and their leadership structures are key. So we see this you know, pronounced difference among the parties in the United States and the extent to which they recruit and support women. And by the emphasis on parties is a bit unexpected in Brazil. You know, I said they have 35 parties. It has a notoriously weak party system. Candidates can self-select to be, to run for office with the party. Uh, and so because of that, scholars have often discounted the explanatory power of parties. But this is important in Brazil and here. You can't simply leave the door open for people that have been marginalized for so long and expect them to walk through it. You have to walk them through the door and offer support throughout the process. So I had this really powerful quote from a, a woman in Brazil who exuded political, I mean, she you know, had been an activist, an advocate, a leader in the party for so long. And when I asked if she had thought about running, she said, I'm not going to take bread off the table to run a campaign with no support. And so the risk calculations for women, especially for marginalized women, is different. You know, there's more at stake. And so I think that that was really illuminating to me to think about, you know, when women talk about, think about the idea of running for office, we carry so much more into that decision-making process. You know, it's about, uh, you know, our community, our family. Uh, and so that is, is a very heavy burden. Um, there's been a discussion in the United States um, uh, of thinking about the relationally embedded understanding of candidacy, right? So it's not just about us individually, but all of these kind of webs of relationships that we're embedded in. And so I'm especially interested in, in looking at that here and in Brazil of, of what are the kind of resources that would help women run viable campaigns. Uh, and there's been a lot of push to think about like candidate training programs and stuff to, to better prepare women for office. I think that that is useful, but it's got to be paired with reforms that actually address the structural barriers that prevent women uh, from, from running and winning, right? So you can't just improve women, you know, in our, in our qualifications, but you have to also change, uh, you know, the structures that, that deter us from, from running and winning. And so I think that the connection between party ties and civil society organizations is especially crucial in furthering inclusion. 
You just touched on this a bit, um, but expanding a little bit more, women make up 51% of the total population in America, but only make up 24% of the U.S. Senate and 27% of the U.S. House of Representatives. So why do you believe there are so few women in politics in the United States? Look, it wasn't until after I was even born that we had even 5% women in the U.S. House. So now we're up to 27%, notably 37% of that 27% are Black, Indigenous, Latinx, Asian American, Pacific Islander women, mostly Democrats, it should be stated. Um, But in this country, so their historical trajectories matter. Um, But what I would point to is our electoral system. The single member district electoral system exacerbates the incumbency advantage and perpetuates the status quo. So incumbency collection, 90% of the time, they win re-election 95% of the time. That was in 2014. And most incumbents are men. And so that incumbency advantage self-perpetuates. And so we know that, you know, in this country, subnational units, so um, at the municipal level, have different kinds of electoral systems. So there are multi-member districts and and subnational units in this country. And those rules help women. And so this idea here in in the United States of uh, kind of American exceptionalism and this myth of meritocracy, and in many ways, racial resentment, undermine our ability to imagine a new system and to have support for affirmative action measures like an electoral quota. And so I think that those together help to explain, uh, you know, the kind of stasis or kind of stagnation are inability to kind of see potential changes in our electoral rules, which would certainly um, bring about, you know, future changes. But I would say that I'm optimistic. The, the role model effect, which speaks to the adage that you cannot be what you cannot see, shows us that when children see women in power, it shapes their own political interests, political knowledge, and ambition. And that holds promise. So as we see more people like Stacey Abrams, AOC, in power, that will change how we imagine, access, and exercise power in this country and beyond. Dr. Kristen Wiley, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. We ask this question of all of our guests. What would you do to strengthen democracy? Thanks so much for this question. I would implore people to get involved in democracy. I know that people get uh, frustrated or disillusioned by kind of politics as usual and then often shut off. And I would say that instead of shutting off, we need to be called into politics and try to transform the system from within. So I would say more participation. I would like to see more critical civics education at an early stage in our educational uh, pursuits. So people should be understanding critical concepts like intersectionality, like you know, privilege and oppression at an earlier stage so that we can together work to establish and reinforce a more perfect union. This requires participation of all of us. And I would like to see that 
be carried out through more comprehensive educational approaches at an earlier age, more uh, potentially like a service requirement of people at, as young adults so that we are valorizing service in all ways, right? So not just military service, but also um, things like Teach for America and other, you know, infrastructure projects that enrich the country and also uh, help to valorize service. And so I think that to try to develop the civic life of the country would, would be helpful in strengthening democracy here. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on.